what up, Kingfish? Aqua lads and aqua lasses, welcome back for the latest installment of Kingfish, the Shane McMahon audio journey through Sunday Night Heat. I'm Johnny C, and as always, I will be your host for this evening's proceedings. And folks, I'm going to tell you right from the get-go, tonight we've got a conspiracy to uncover. And that's aside from also uncovering more details about the collusional conspiracy between The Undertaker and Kane as we march ever forward on the highway to hell. So, if it's your first time listening to Kingfish, what we do is we talk about Sunday Night Heat. And we frame whatever happened on Sunday Night Heat around the ludicrously awesome commentary of the error apparent to the WWF at the time thrown, Mr. Shane McMahon. And we get started with a with a doobie, alright? It's August 23rd, 1998, and I'm Shane McMahon, along with the always cheerful Jim Ross. Which is just great, because this whole time... They've been sort of doing this angle. It's not really an angle, but on commentary, Shane is always sort of trying to press Jim Ross's buttons. Uh, you know, because Shane's out there just having a great time. Having a time of my life, Grandpops. Or Grandpa. Well, that's later when he when he calls out his old Grandpops. Uh, much like Shane, I'm easily excitable and sometimes say ridiculous things on commentary. But, you know, he's always sort of poking at JR and trying to get him to laugh, trying to make him to uh, get him to break character when he brings his friends out to ringside. So, I don't know. It's just a great little introduction. Kind of like putting on an old sweater. You know, it makes me feel nice and comfortable right away. Well, what doesn't make me feel nice and comfortable, folks, is when history is altered. Unless we're talking about Star Wars special editions where they increase the special effects and fuck with the sound and uh, get me into a theater in 1997 and change my cinematic life forever. But that's another story altogether. Because what we have off the bat is a change to history as the lovable parade of human oddities come down the aisle for our first encounter, as Sean Mooney would say. Because right off the bat, folks, we've got a dub. And look, I'm not here to promote the insane clown posse. I, I'm honestly not a fan. I do sometimes laugh, uh, taking a look at some of the death match. Like, they've got a, a death match where they do commentary with uh, Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. And, you know, it's funny uh, for about five minutes. You know, it gets a little old. And, and I understand that there can be humor found there, all right? And actually, you know, when I was in college, I was actually, for a little bit, uh, sort of acquaintances or chums with a gentleman who definitely declared himself a, a full-blown juggalo. And I gotta tell you, though, folks, he was, he was, he was a big dude, a giant, if you will. Nicest dude in the history, well, I don't know about the history of the world, but one of the nicest dudes I've ever met. And his juggalo-ness only meant that he really enjoyed the music and sort of the culture. But at the same time, I never saw him hurt a flea or say a mean thing or anything. So it's not even that. I'm just not into the whole thing. But what I am into is everybody come see the latest show. Unlike anything that you know, fun to be down with the clown. The big oddity freak shows in town. Because honestly, aside from John Tenta as Golga, the only thing the oddities had going for themselves was the theme song. So if you take that away... What are we dealing with here? But, you know, they're coming down the aisle to some makeshift, like, carnival music. You know, they could have at least put Doink's theme in here. That would have at least made some sort of sense. 
Luna. Well, the human oddities, if you're not familiar with them, it's a, it's a, it's they're kind of like the four horsemen. Uh, but there's, there's it are four. Yeah, there's four of them. Uh, but they're not the four horsemen. Yep, that's all the explanation I give. No, I'm kidding. So. Luna, Luna Vachon is one of the oddities. She's coming down in an evening gown. Uh, there's another oddity called the Giant Silva, who's just a really tall dude that I don't even know if he ever had a match. I mean, and I don't say that to throw shade at myself as a wrestling historian or fan, but he is one of those, like, projects. Like, oh, we, hey, hey, Pritchard, get in here. We got a big bastard. Let's let's train him to be a wrestler. Oh, Vince, uh, he's not really a wrestler. He's just a sideshow attraction. Bullshit, Patterson. Or Pritchard. Whatever the fuck your name is, we're going to make him a star. So, I, I don't know. He's one of those guys that, like, never worked, but he was always there. Uh, fucking Aqua K favorite, the Gator, from Starman. Because Kurgan the Interrogator has appeared on Starman a few times. Uh, because that's where we review the worst matches of all time, according to Dave Meltzer. Cheap plug for that show. Uh, but we've lovingly called him the Gator. I like to think that he eventually retired from wrestling and became the Gator that's in the Aqua Cave logo. Uh, so yeah, if you've never paid attention to the Aqua Cave logo, check it out. That's Kurgan the Gator. And the final member is Golga. Now, I mentioned earlier that Golga is the only thing that's worth a damn. Golga is, of course, the lovable individual who's not a fish, who's not a disaster. He's a man. John Tenta. And he's in really good shape. He's Earthquake, if you don't know who John Tenta is. And he wears a mask that's lumpy because he has physical deformities on his face. The character does. Okay, John Tenta does not. And he's obsessed with Cartman. Much like a lot of folks, because I think South Park, that's like a, if that's not a 98 show, that's a late 97, because I remember, I believe it came out like as school was starting. I'm going to say 97, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't give a shit. (laughs) And of course, South Park still exists to this very day. He carries a stuffed Eric Cartman figure, and he wears the Cartman beefcake, beefcake shirt. And, you know, Beefcake, Beefcake, if you will, was definitely one of the early meme-worthy, to use a modern expression that makes me want to slam my head against glass. Uh, It was definitely meme-worthy, and it was definitely one of those things that caught on amongst the youths in America. So I get where they're coming from, trying to tap into it. So, not only am I upset that this song is dubbed, okay, but here's the kicker. The dub, it's a taped show, right? Obviously, it's Sunday Night Heat. They tape it. I think this show's taped like a week and a half before. And the dub is so bad that they apply to it because they completely have to put the dub on just the audio channel. So all the commentary during the oddities entrance is null and void. There is absolutely none. And of course, this is a Shane McMahon audio journey. And God knows what he might have said about the oddities as they made their entrance. And I'm just appalled that I can't deliver to you what was said. Alright? Then, as the oddities get into the ring, out of nowhere, the screen fades to black for like an instant. Initially, I thought this was one of those peacock things where they throw in commercials. Because I, I, I ain't paying for commercials on the cock. Alright? J- Johnny C has no time for commercials. And I was like, oh, I hate that they do this on even the stuff that you've paid for. You know? But then, the screen fades back in from black, and their opponents, Southern Justice, are just in the ring. 
They're in the ring, and all of a sudden I hear, do you smell what the rock is cooking? And I just hit pause and was like, what the fuck is going on right now? Okay? And here's where you start the theme song from that movie JFK by Oliver Stone. do 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 you know, you put that song underneath anything, even if you're just like giving directions for how to make cookies, it makes it sound intense and conspiratorial. And that's why I like it. So I did some research. Well, I tried desperately to find an, this episode on like YouTube or anything like that. I guess I could have looked on Daily Motion. I didn't. And, and I couldn't find anything, anyone, no one had it uploaded in its pure form or anything like that. And then I even tried to read some, like, reviews of people, like, you know, who, who reviewed the show over the history on the internet, because Lord knows those are a dime a dozen, just like wrestling podcasts. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. But no, uh, that my point is, though, is that no one seemed to point this out anywhere. And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe nobody gives a shit, or maybe nobody knows what the scoop is. I couldn't believe that. And so... I ended up on, uh, I think it was Pro Wrestling Fandom or whatever, because I wanted to write down where this show took place, which is why I haven't said it yet, because I wanted to give the sequence events in its natural order. So it's in Des Moines, and this is where I discovered that. Uh, home, of, home of Seth Rollins! Yay, I wonder if little Seth is in the crowd. But if you've ever been on that site, at the bottom of their recaps, they have screen caps for the show. And the screen caps are all presented in chronological order. And the first one I saw was a screen cap of Shane McMahon and Jim Ross at ringside getting their name cards plastered. And of course, Shane McMahon is with a friend, as usual. Now, here's the kicker, though, all right? Because you could have looked at this and been like, oh, I guess I just haven't gotten to this part yet. But if you look at the picture... Not only are a few people in the front row behind the commentators waving their hands in the air, but so are Shane and his friend. Which means, this took place during the oddities entrance, because I'm sure Shane had his hands in the air. Come on, JR, put your hands in the air. It's the oddities. You gotta love this lovable freak show. Those are his words, allegedly, not mine. But because they couldn't, isolate the audio and block out the insane clown posse music but also have the commentary come through because the commentary is all dubbed in so it's just one audio track or one audio channel and i'm not some sort of expert but that's even with a rudimentary understanding i can i can understand why they couldn't do this so they just had to fucking straight up cut hard to black and eliminate all of the setting of the scene from the announcers, their introduction. We didn't get to see Shane's friend, who, once again, he still continues to bring the ladies. It's glorious and hilarious. And I'm just fucking pissed. You know, and I wondered when I loaded up the file, it, this episode's only 40 minutes long, which is fine, but they're usually 44 to 45 minutes, so I knew something was up right away. And I get it. I get that you fucking... I don't know, like, why you can't just fucking... Like, did the Insane Clown Posse really retain royalties to this? You didn't just be like, hey, make us a song, you cheap fucking clowns. And we own it, and we own you. Like, I don't know. <sighs> but as I mentioned, the Rock's theme song hits. Now that the oddities and Southern Justice are waiting to start their match. And that's another thing, too. Because when we come from fade black... When we fade in back from black... Back from black! <laughs> anyway... 
not only is Southern Justice just there, but the Rock's music hits, and then he just comes out to the stage with a ladder. He positions it on the stage and leaves. But we do get, the Rock's got the ladder, JR. And I think what upsets me the most about the Rock and this ladder is not only that he just sets it up and leaves, uh, it does pay off later, but it's a red ladder. And we all know a yellow ladder is historically going to be a play in SummerSlam. I think that's probably why they chose a yellow ladder, because it stands out so much. But Tony Chimmel's like, ladies and gentlemen, the Intercontinental Champion, The Rock! And then he just leaves. <laughs> How high do you think that ladder is, JR? What, what is Shane going for on this? Is he, is he trying to, like, trick Jim Ross into saying something ludicrous? Like, well, no, Shane, that's a 25-foot ladder. Like, it's just standard size, Shane. But maybe he doesn't know how high a ladder is because he's lived with a silver spoon in his mouth from Greenwich, Connecticut. I don't know. I, I didn't live with a silver spoon in my mouth and I don't know how tall a ladder is. So I guess that throws that a core, uh, just right out the gate. But the bell does ring. And, you know, this isn't a show that really focuses on matches. All right. But Shane, you know, there's some fun during this match. So I guess we should probably get into it. As previously mentioned, uh, all four members of the oddities came down to the ring, but it looks like the auditorial uh, competitors here are going to be Golga and the Gator. Of course, the Gator starts the match with some dancing, and that seems fair. He's decked out in his greatest or Sunday best Tommy Bahama shirt. So good for you, Gator. You've certainly found some personality. Uh, Luna is, of course, the spokesperson for the oddity, Shane, and I'm sure that's a high-paying job, JR lets us know. Eventually, Golga gets in the ring, and as I said, and as I want to make very clear, John Tenta brought his time card, because he's here to fucking work, alright? John Tenta, I just did an episode of Kingfish, a cheap plug again, it's a negative two, episode four, I believe, where I talked about the Natural Disasters versus Money, Inc. at WrestleMania 8. There... Earthquake, or John Tenta, was absolutely there to work as well. It's just something I'm starting to notice about Tenta. I really want to sort of maybe go back and look at some of his greatest hits because he's a guy that I'm slowly gaining a lot of respect for. And I mean that. I'm not I'm not joking, okay? But JR's putting over the lumps on Golga's head. Uh, speaking of his head, he gets banged into the turnbuckles by, I think it's Dennis Knight. And then Golga's all like, I'm a beefcake! Beefcake! And he rams his own head into the turnbuckle to show Phineas Godwin that it is an absolutely worthless and futile attempt to get one over on him. So Phineas makes the tag to Mark Canterbury. He starts Fist of Fire of Fury, as one does when they get a hot tag, and Shane's all like, Oh yeah! Look at Mark Canterbury! He is just an ass-beating machine, J.R.! Now, a quick Google search reveals that he is not the only ass-kicking machine in existence. But again, I think I might that might be a podcast discussion for another time. Dustin Runnels once again appears in the crowd, carrying his side that he is coming back. Who is coming back, JR? JR has no time to ponder this, though, because on his commentary journey, he's putting over the fact that at SummerSlam, we're going to see three of the oddities take on all four members of Kind Tai, and I don't know why. Well, okay, I added that I don't know why, but that's going to happen at SummerSlam, and I start immediately wondering how they're going to edit that, because ICP is not only with the oddities, but they sing them down to the ring, and everybody's all like, hands in the air and what have you, and I swear, I I don't really think I'm going to watch it, but if I load it up and it's just fade to black and they're all in the ring, I mean, come the fuck on. I mean, really? Anywho, 
Uh, they also put over that Sable is friends with the Oddities, which leads to a brief discussion of the mixed tag team match that's going to be taking place at SummerSlam between Marvelous Mark Marrow and Jacqueline, the baby with back, versus Sable and her 38 specials and a mystery partner. I wonder who that could be. It's a mysterious enigma that we don't have the answer to. Golga goes for the earthquake splash, and he misses. But on commentary, we get, Oh! The big seat! Nobody home! A slop drop is delivered to Golga, but the gator saves. Uh, Luda then jumps in the ring for no reason and tackles Mark Canterbury, so Southern Justice has won by DQ. As Luna is flailing around on Mark's back, we get, Oh, man! She's psycho! Uh, Southern Justice's comrade-in-arms, Jeff Jarrett, runs in with the Clippers. He threatens to chop Luna's goldy locks, and the giant Silva slowly enters the ring. Jarrett sees this, bails, because he's not about to take a chokeslam from an untrained giant. Henry Godwin volunteers for this. Uh, a chokeslam is delivered to Mark Canterbury, Henry Godwin, and for some reason, this makes Shane McMahon climax on commentary when he goes, Yes! 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 Shades of Meg Ryan from When Harry Met Sally, or... Kurt Angle and Christy Hemme from that When Harry Met Sally parody from WrestleMania 21 with the tap, tap, tap. The ICP dub music comes back, and of course we lose commentary. Thank God, though, we head to a commercial. Now, thanks to the power of the future and streaming content, we are back immediately. And here comes Animal of the Legion of Doom, and he actually has Pyro, and he's flying solo which is unexpected, but I suppose welcome. And Tony Jimble says that this is a European Championship match. And I would just love to see the internal WWF ranking. WWF Top 10 European Championship title rankings. Number 10, Scott Taylor. Number 9, Brad Christopher. I, I can't think of 10 European Championship level contenders, so I'm not going to do the WCW Top 10 for this. But uh, Tony Chimmel also doesn't only reveal that it's a European Championship match, but he reveals to me that this is not Animal of the Legion of Doom. This is LOD 2000 member Animal! And that kind of sounds like a dildo. Not like a person who's an asshole. I just mean like a dildo. You know, a masturbatory tool that you could purchase. Uh, let me get the LOD 2000 member Animal. I mean, it, it kind of, right? Anywho... We'll have to ask Deadpool now that he's on Disney Plus and see if he's aware of where we can purchase this. JR lets us know that Animal is flying solo tonight, and that might be a taste of things to come, since Hawk has been having problems as of late. When all of a sudden, Shane chimes in, He's here, JR. Look! So Animal, and I was expecting the camera to cut, but it doesn't. So Animal's in the ring. He's taken off his, you know, accoutrement, his his helmet and his shoulder pads, and he's doing that thing where you're getting warmed up and you're like putting your pumping your arms forward and backwards as if you're like hugging a person and then unhugging them, like hug, unhug, hug, unhug. I don't know what the fucking scientific term is for it, but I want to make it very clear that that's what he's doing. He's getting limber, ready for the match. All right, and, and because the detail of his hand movements is important, because in his street clothes, Hawk. That being Hawk, of <laughs> Legion of Doom 2000 member Hawk, rolls into the ring, <laughs> takes a look at Animal, and just starts not mimicking him because he wants to make fun of him, but mimicking him because he doesn't know what else to do because he's 
drunk? And I'm doing the finger quotes thing here? Maybe. I don't know. He could be. But he just starts limbering up as well. And I... <laughs> it was so fucking funny. It's like he's Damien Hawkdow or Damien Mistow. He's just animal stunt double. I really... I mean, look, it's, it's probably not that funny, but man. Uh, out, though, comes the European champion, Munich, Germany's favorite son, D'Lo Brown. And speaking of Germany... I I want to point out and put into the zeitgeist that I would like to... Because I just reviewed Thor Love and Thunder over on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. And I was not a fan. And I was very disappointed. But I'm a big fan of Taika Waititi, like with the director and what he's capable of. So I went back and I rewatched Jojo Rabbit, which I hadn't seen since... uh, I didn't see it in theaters, but like as soon as it came on demand, like I picked it up and watched it and really enjoyed it. But I hadn't watched it since then. And, you know, I was thinking about, it's, you know, D-Lo this week is allegedly from Munich, Germany, and it made me think of Jojo Rabbit. And, and it is really good, and I really, really recommend it. It just, you know, just wanted to put that out. I wanted, I wanted to throw some positive vibes toward Taika, since I was so hard on him, and I wanted to shamelessly promote my review of Thor, Love, and Thunder, now available on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, King. Uh, I heard D-Lo was big in Ireland, but folks, on a much more serious note, we're all concerned for the condition of Hawk. It is obvious, at least in our view, that Hawk has a problem with his demons. <laughs> That's verbatim. He fucking said demons. And he certainly seems to be in another altered state. Hawk prepares for the match even deeper by taking off his wristwatch and his hat and continuing the arm movements. He then slaps Animal right in his man boobs to get him fired up for this tag team encounter. You can't compete. And the WWF when you're messed up like that, JR. Cocaine, however, is a different story. If you're high on coke, welcome to the WWF. If you're drunk, oh, JR, what's wrong with that man? So either you shape up Hawk or you're going to get shipped out. Hawk, however, realizes his air and collects his hat and starts to leave the ring. But Mark Henry comes down. Now, Mark Henry is not only D'Lo Brown's sometimes tag team partner, his fellow nation member, but he's also his best friend in the whole world. And I think Mark Henry coming down here is totally justified because his best friend D'Lo is staring across the ring at a two-on-one situation against the goddamn Road Warriors. Now, we know from past history that the Road Warriors are world eaters, much like Bray Wyatt. And one of them here is drunk and completely unpredictable, and Lord knows what he will do. You know, maybe he'll spike both of D'Lo's eyes out, much like that legendary segment uh, with Dusty Rhodes. So Mark Henry enters the fray and immediately nails Hawk. I think he clotheslines him over the rope so he's on the outside, just so this European title contest can be a fair one-on-one encounter. And this is met with a chorus of boos. I don't understand why. Mark is doing the right thing. And to put exclamation point on his good deeds, he does a big ultimate warrior splash onto Hawk on the outside to make sure that this will indeed be a fair and balanced encounter. Now Shane and JR at first are like, oh no, Hawk, oh he just, he's just, he doesn't know what's going on, King. But then Shane finally has had enough and he goes, you know what, screw this, good for Henry for doing that to Hawk. And ladies and gentlemen, it took three episodes of Sunday Night Heat and ten minutes and ten seconds of episode four, but Shane McMahon has finally said something intelligent and logical on commentary. Mark 
sticks around, though, and offers a body slam to Animal, which, okay, I will admit, is a little unfair, but D'Lo's mental state was affected by fearing that he had to go two-on-one, so how about this match starts with D'Lo standing and Animal on his back? D'Lo takes advantage, though, and immediately heads up top, delivers his chest protector slash bulletproof vest-assisted uh, frog splash, and we get, oh man, low down! Draws, however, runs down with a chair, and uh, the nation members flee, and the referee's just flailing his arms in the air, so I guess this European title contest is indeed a no contest. We finally uh, get a great shot of Animal coming to on the floor like, well, where am I? Well, Animal, there's a no condition for this European title match, unfortunately, Shane. JR, the guy in no condition, it's Hawk. Right there, look at his eyes. We get a great shot of Hawk's face, and he's like, (laughs) Tomorrow, however, is the finale of the Brawl for All. So Shane lets us know we're going to take a look at a little video package. And there is a big big video package of the entire Brawl for All tournament. It's glorious and it's painful to watch. Both because I feel bad for these people, but it's some really bad shit. My big takeaway is that this is hilarious, but also the Godfather gets knocked out by Bark Gun, I think in the semis, right? And all the attention is usually put on Dr. Death getting KO'd, which I understand because, you know, this whole thing was created for Dr. Death and he gets knocked out and that's a big thing. But when the Godfather gets knocked out, it's so much more brutal and so much more of a shit show because he falls and his head slash neck dangles over the apron because he falls so close to the ropes. It's, it's quite frightening, actually. Of course, we know the Godfather was okay, so it's okay to go back at this and be like, Jesus, what a shit show. But, I don't know. Also, another big reveal here, folks, that i completely forgotten about. In the Brawl for All, because we see clips of it, Hawk actually fought Draws in the Brawl for All. Now, let's think about this for a second. We know that Hawk, the character, is a drunk on TV. And we know that Hawk, the person, was a drunk in real life, and that's why they made him a drunk on TV. And I'm not trying to throw shade. Like, alcoholism is seriously not funny. All right? It's not. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. So we know that Mike, I think his name is Mike, is a little unstable and having problems. And he's probably concerned, because Draws has been teaming with them, that he might get replaced by Draws because of his problems. So, you know what's going to be really good for his mental state? Putting him out there on live television in a goddamn shoot fight against the guy who's half of his age... And the guy that he's afraid is going to take his job and his livelihood from him. I mean, hey, it's, it, that's the WWF in a nutshell. They really care about their independent contractors. Tomorrow night, bombs will be flying. Who's getting knocked out? JR. We get some shots of the ominous ladder in the aisleway. Again, it's still red. And we head to commercial. Oh, well, first, they let us know that later tonight we're going to get an update on the highway to hell, and we're going to get Draws versus Jeff Jarrett. Then we go to commercial, and now we're back from commercial. We must have missed a little intro uh, for a commercial teaser, because, you know, when the commercials are done, the WWF usually runs one of their own commercials to promote a product. Must have been for tomorrow night's Monday Night Raw, because the first thing Shane on commentary says is, Oh, yeah, JR, tomorrow night on Monday Night Raw, Shamrock. Versus Severn, three. 
it's knuckle-up time. Which I think is hilarious, because if they're saying this is Shamrock versus Severn 3, they're obviously counting their two matches in UFC, which is fine. I don't have a problem with them promoting that. But Shane says it's Shamrock versus Severn 3, and it's knuckle-up time. Clearly borrowing the subtitle from the third Three Ninjas movie, which is Three Ninjas Knuckle-Up. So, when it's the third event in a sequence, it must be the knuckle-up version. The Headbangers are here, and I'm not excited to see them, but then I get ridiculously excited because I hear some words come over the audio feed, which is, Enough is enough, and it's time for a change! Oh, Owen Hart, God love you. Thank you for showing up on my television screen. It looks like the Headbangers are going to be going one-on-one, or two-on-two, I guess, with uh, Nation member Owen Hart, as he's called on uh, Tony Chimmel's announcement, but also the star of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, Dan the Beast Severed. And if you don't believe me, go back and watch Halloween 3 Season of the Witch and tell me our hero, the Doctor, doesn't look like an out-of-shape... Well, okay, doesn't look like Dan the Beast Severed. We cut to the crowd as Edge watches the proceedings. He strikes without warning, JR. Well, that certainly is true, Shane. Thank you for the update. Dan Severn's shirt is always so sweaty, and I really appreciate that. They let us know that he's been training Owen Hart for his upcoming Lion's Den encounter at SummerSlam. Owen and Thrasher start, and I'm just blown away because Thrasher looks good in this sequence, and I truly believe that Owen Hart is the only person on the planet that could make Thrasher look this good in a one-minute sequence. Owen Hart hilariously uh, runs away and tags Dan the Beast, and Dan comes in with a double-leg takedown, and we get, ooh-ah, man, Severn is strong. Then, after that double-leg takedown, folks, I have something egregious to commit, or commit, to report. A crime is being committed. That crime is Dan the Beast Severn has to sell for the headbangers. He immediately goes on the defensive and starts selling his arm, and the headbangers are working him over. Dan Severn becomes our face, question mark, in peril? I don't understand it. Like, Dan Severn should be murdering the headbangers. This is a crime against the character of Dan the Beast Severn. And speaking of crimes, first, a serial killer is making waves on the beach. Get it? And Jamie's boyfriend is the prime suspect on an all-new Pack Blue at 8. Then, at 9, Tom is the victim of a drive-by shooting. Now Casey is on the hunt to track down the trigger man on an all-new Silk Stockings. And at 10, Section 1's founder kidnaps Nikita for a mission she may not survive on an all-new La Femme Nikita on the USA Network. So, as Dan Severn is selling for the headbangers, Shane pontificates on commentary. JR, you gotta wonder, what is Severn's motivation? And that is a fantastic question, and I could just see Dan Severn in the back before he goes out talking to the agents. What's my motivation for this match? Owen, though, gets a blind tag. And I will give you two guesses what happens when Owen Hart gets a blind tag in a tag team match, but you're only gonna need one of them. That's right, he hits the headbanger with a surprise spinning heel kick. Eventually, Owen and Thrasher are both down, and I notice in the crowd there are two dudes who are 
not at the show together because they're in different rows and in different areas of the on-camera location, but I noticed that since they realize they're on television, they take turns trying to out-crotch-chop one another. It's quite a sight, and I recommend going back and taking a look at it. Mosh gets the defrosted tag, because it's definitely not a hot tag, and delivers a back body drop to the black heart. We get, oh, boom, on commentary. Now, since Owen was up in the air and then falling downwards, I was really hoping for, oh, man, downtown. But alas, that quest seems to have been paused for now. Shane says he can't wait until next week as he gets to perform live in Madison Square Garden. The house that Grandpa Mac built. Severn is back in now, and I realize, folks, Dan Severn just kind of sucks. He's awful, and I never really noticed that until now. Eventually, Owen Hart gets back in the ring, and he makes Mosh tap out to what I believe is like the modified Dragon Sleeper, but JR calls it that UFC top chokehold. <laughs> that Shane says, that's right, that's what the UFC is all about, submission-type wrestling. Yes, that's what they advertise. Come watch two men engage, in, or two women, doesn't matter, in some submission-type wrestling. No, you want to see people get knocked the fuck out with brutal punches. At least, I don't know, I'm not trying to generalize, I'm not a huge UFC fan. Except, back in the day when I'd go to the video store and rent those fucking UFC tapes that had the warning and the parental advisors all over them, like, Hey, kidsters, don't watch this shit. Which, of course, makes me want to watch this shit. Owen and Dan celebrate their victory, and they walk back to up the entrance ramp. And Dan the B7 is sort of pantomiming advice to Owen. He's, like, waving his hands in the air, and then he's, like, doing the dragon sleeper with his arms, like, showing Owen how to lock in the hold. And Owen's response is glorious. It's another pantomime, but he just points at his brain, indicating, don't worry, Dan, I've got it, because I'm going to use my brain. (laughs) We head to commercial, and we're back. Here comes The Rock. Finally. And he's bringing his tiny intercontinental championship with him because, good lord, that belt is so small in retrospect. He reclaims ownership of the ladder and he brings it down to the ring as well. So, last week, uh, the intercontinental title match between Triple H and The Rock was promoted on commentary, but I pointed out they didn't mention it was a ladder match. They show clips of a street fight that happened on Raw after Heat that was the Nation versus DX. And in this match, the ladder was used quite a bit, and so Triple H challenged Rock to this ladder match. Now The Rock must answer that challenge. Now The Rock starts out the interview by soaking in the booze of the Des Moines, Iowa crowd. And I think it's worth noting here that he's got a lot of heat, and it's going to get even hotter. A great sign in the ring says The Rock cooks Owen's nugget. Is that implying that The Rock is a gourmet chef uh, whose repartee, repartee includes human feces? No time to ponder this because The Rock stares very adamantly over the announce table. And our announcers give two very different responses. Oh, don't look at me. I didn't do nothing. Yo, what up, Rock? This is the largest collection of trailer park trash The Rock has ever seen. Which is a great classic that I hadn't heard in a while. We cut to Shane at ringside laughing with his arm around his friend. And this is our first shot at this week's friend since the conspiracy cut her out of the opening. We get, ha 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 ha, you gotta love The Rock for that. A closer inspection of Shane's friend and... 
she really, really, really looks like Topanga from Boy Meets World. And hey, I am definitely okay with that. Triple H, does a rock accept your challenge? You bet your pretty ass. To which Shane replies, Ooh, like it's a sexy confrontation that's about to happen because he called Triple H's ass pretty. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it's one of the things I love about this show. The Rock does his usual thing. He talks about kicking Triple H's candy ass from pillar to post, rock bottoming him right in the center of the people's ring. And then he's going to climb the people's ladder. And I have to pause here because folks... The next thing that The Rock says, well, it's quite simple and really not that memorable, maybe. But I want to point out that for some reason, The Rock's next phrase really caught on like hotcakes in my friend group in the late 90s. Because The Rock says he's going to climb the people's ladder rung by damn rung by damn rung. And this phrase caught on so much that we would often use it to describe the most trivial things. Like, what do you want to do tonight, guys? Well, first, we're going to get some food, and then we're going to climb rung by damn rung, go to the party, get drunk rung by damn rung, and, and that's sort of the context of how we would use it. Now, look, I'm not saying this like it's a brilliant or great thing. I'm just sharing the fun little detail that came out for me watching this promo. And that's part of the journey, right? Sort of getting all the feels and the memories that come back from these things. He lets us know that at SummerSlam, we're all going to smell what The Rock is cooking. On commentary, we get JR. I smell it. It's going to be live one week from now at SummerSlam. And JR is doing his real typical late 90s, we're still at war with WCW thing, where he's like, Folks, we got two young athletes in their prime climbing a ladder at Madison Square Garden. You know, that whole thing, which I don't blame him for. They hype that tomorrow night, The Rock is going to fight China. And I kind of want to watch it, but I don't. Now, there's a pretty big faux pas, in my opinion here, as we head to commercial. We get a shot of The Rock walking back up the aisle, and he's got his championship belt and everything. It's really nothing abnormal, but he's carrying the ladder backstage with him. Now, folks, I absolutely... Well, first of all, I want to point out it's a silly thing to talk about, but I absolutely do not believe for one fraction of an iota of a second that The Rock character would go through the trouble of carrying the ladder backstage. He'd let some Rudy poo ring technician do it. I mean, seriously, like, I just, like, I know the, the ladder's got to get out of the ring. I know it's only practical for Dwayne to carry it because he's heading to the back anyway. But come on, man. Have him walk up and then just have some sort of technician, you know, hop in behind him and throw it under the ring. Oh, well, we head to commercial. But hey, we're back. And holy shit, WWF light heavyweight champion... Taka Mishinoku is here, and he's accompanied by both Mr. and Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. Now, I love this here because they're at the height of Choppy Choppy Mania, and they're doing the Choppy Choppy hand motion. In the ring, Scorpio and his ponytail are all ready for the confrontation. And man, seeing Scorpio makes me think of so many ridiculous things. 
One of my favorite dumbest things in wrestling history is that music video from uh, Scorpio's early WCW days where there's two youths in a neighborhood and they don't really want to go to school because school's lame. And Too Cold Scorpio pulls up in a limo like he's a goddamn pimp slash child trafficking drug dealer and he's like, kids, you gotta go to school. And to show you why, let's dance all the way to school. And it's like, everybody, here comes to go, Scorpio. And the kids, and like, they start dancing to school. And then random people in the neighborhood are like, hey, that looks like fun. And they start joining in the dance. And, you know, by the end of the, st- by the, end of the dance, they've made it to the kids' elementary school. It's real good stuff. Uh, this is a non-title match because Scorpio is billed at being 244 pounds, which kind of blows my mind. Oh, I for- <laughs> you know what? I get accused of having to touch Alzheimer's. I forgot the second thing that Scorpio reminds me of. It reminds me of Scorpio from The Simpsons. One of the greatest characters in Simpsons history, Hank Scorpio, the evil billionaire entrepreneur that wants to take over the world, but he's also like the best boss ever. And he even has his own James Bond theme song. Scorpio! He'll sting you with his dreams of power and wealth. Scorpio! And it ends with a fantastic, He loves German beer! If you haven't seen, you only move twice. The best Simpsons episode. Well, it's not the best Simpsons episode ever, but it is one of the best. JR lets us know that in his opinion, Scorpio is one of the most underrated and underappreciated superstars in the WWF, Shane. The match starts. We get a really shitty spinning heel kick by Taka. And it sends Hank Scorpio to the outside of the ring for some unpaid leave. He then mocks Scorpio by doing Scorpio's flippy flippy hand motion thing that he used to signal for the 450. And evil, and evil Taka is very, very funny. Taka hits an Asahi moonsault that looks like shit. And we get, oh man, oh man, he almost went over Scorpio. Well, Shane... He is going to go over Scorpio. Just give it a minute or two. In the aisle, uh, Mr. Yamaguchi hits Taka when Scorpio ducks. And then Scorpio extends an invitation to Mr. Yamaguchi-san to a one-man superkick party. Now Mrs. Yamaguchi-san stands in front of Scorpio, blocking any further harm to her bow. And Shade says, what's this? A little loyalty change here. Now, Scorpio halts his assault and gets in Mrs. Mrs. Yamaguchi-san's face. Uh, And before he enters the ring... Guys, I don't know how to explain this. He, like, reaches up and awkwardly rubs Mrs. Yamaguchi-san's face. And it's gut-wrenching. It's very off-putting. And how is Scorpio the babyface here? Uh, As the match continues, Jim Ross hypes uh, that we need to watch the Home Shopping Network after SummerSlam ends... And did anyone else out here fall for that? Because I watched every minute and second of the Home Shopping Network WWF presentation. And did anyone else out there tape it? Because I did. Now, I don't have that tape anymore. I'm not hyping that I'm going to be able to review it or anything like that. But, man, I was just I was just all in this Attitude Era. Brings back the feels. Uh, the Scorpster hits a hard powerbomb on Taka. We get JR. Have you ever felt the power bomb? I know you felt the stunner, but not the power bomb. It's so fucking random. Like he's not asking him about any other moves. It's just <laughs> Jr. Have you felt the power bomb? <laughs> Shane's awkward conversational transitions 
just blow me away. A Scorpio hits another super kick, which is called a martial arts thrust kick by JR. Scorpio then signals his own 450 hand gesture. But instead of doing the 450, he picks up Taka into a Death Valley driver position and then flips him backwards into a face cutter type maneuver. I didn't expect this, and it was kind of interesting visually. However, on commentary, Shade says, Oh! Nice suplex! <laughs> oh, shades of last week when he called the DDT the suplex. Scorpio goes up and hits a moonsault. He goes for the pin, but Mrs. Yamaguchi-san distracts the ref. And then Mr. Yamaguchi-san distracts the ref. Taka no-sells the moonsault by getting up immediately. A drop kick to Scorpio. And a Mishinoku driver gets the 1-2-3. No time for celebration, though, because Val Venus is here with a microphone. Shane introduces himself to Val by saying, Hello! Val says... I just read your fortune cookie. And you know what? First of all, classy, Val. But second of all, Taka is Japanese, not Chinese. Now, I'm not saying fortune cookies are a Chinese thing, but I am saying in American culture, fortune cookies are a staple of Chinese food. Anywho, he says tomorrow he's going to walk softly and carry a big stick and unload on you. We get a close-up of Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, and we get, Check out those eyes, JR! At this point, I'm like, oh, God, Shane, no. Don't say anything. But it's okay, because he says, Mrs. Yamaguchi still has the hots for Val. But speaking of someone who does not, let's hear from Mario Lopez. <laughs> Which, number one, what? We're, we're throwing to Mario Lopez? Number two, what an awkward transition. It's a pre-recorded statement from Mario Lopez on the set of Pacific Blue in his nerdy biker cop uniform. And on his experience at Sunday Night Heat, he says, Oh, it was great. All these people. And it's like a rock concert. And you had signs and great energy and people were yelling. He then uh, sort of generically talks shade about Val Venus for getting in a confrontation with him during week one. You can barely hear the audio here. It's bad. They probably had to change the background music or something like that. He basically ends by saying, You know, Val was lucky I didn't actually get my hands on him. We cut back to the arena. Yeah, whatever, Mario. Well, Pack Blue is next, but still to come. Draws takes on Double J. Shane McMahon throwing some hardcore shade at Mario Lopez. Jim Ross promises a special look at the highway to hell coming up next. We do head to commercial, but hey, like I say, it's the future, so we're back. And we clearly missed another Highway to Hell commercial, because the first thing we see is the matchup graphic for SummerSlam, sponsored by Stridex of the official WWF Championship main event, Stone Cold versus The Undertaker. And, oh man, it's going to be hot. Shane McMahon does throw to the previously promised video package, covering the recent events between The Undertaker and Stone Cold. Now, this video package absolutely ends up being the quote-unquote main event of the evening because it is really long. Like, by the time it's done, there's only three minutes left of the Sunday Night Heat, a heat actual video. And, uh, I don't know, I feel kind of conflicted. I don't really see the point in recapping the whole video because we're not going to watch SummerSlam. But I guess the gist of it is Austin shows up to Raw with a hearse, and uh, he calls the Undertaker out. Undertaker comes out wearing Kane's mask, and they beat the shit out of each other. He throws Kane Taker, they don't really know who it is, into the hearse. And then as he goes to drive away, he looks in the driver's seat, and the Undertaker is already there. And JR's calls 
Kim Kane the whole time, but he clearly has Undertaker's tattoos. I just, I don't know. It's fine, though. But who was that masked man? The absolute highlight of the entire thing is that early in the package, Austin calls out McMahon, and McMahon and his entourage of Stooges do come to the ring, and there's a short clip of Austin yelling at McMahon, telling him that he walks like a peacock. And I'm just like, wow, isolate Austin saying, Peacock! And then uh, you should, every time I load up Peacock on my phone, it should be like, Welcome to Peacock! But, you know, I'm not getting paid for this, so if that does happen, I'm getting some residuals. We head back to the arena now with Double J, Jeff Jarrett coming down the aisle. We head to commercial. We're back. Jeff Jarrett needs to focus on what he does best, JR. He's a great technical wrestler. The Draws comes out, sprints to the ring, and immediately attacks Jarrett. Look who's PO'd right now! The Draws! Jeff Jarrett immediately hits the stroke, but at this point in his career, it's still a transition move. They say that Draws is wrestling this match with a torn bicep because, you know, the brawl for all had to be a thing. X-Pac runs through the crowd, hits Jarrett with a spin kick, DQ, X-Pac has clippers, and he cuts just a smidge of Jeff Jarrett's hair before Southern Justice sprint to the ring like they just found Mikey Myers and X-Pac and the Draws head to safety. Yeah, X-Pac! Yeah! Again, so weird to hear Shane yell X-Pac when I'm expecting X-Punk. Funny move as Draws takes the hair that they cut from Jarrett and puts it on his own head. I thought that was pretty funny. But then Shane says, oh yeah, a little hair redemption. <laughs> what? What is hair redemption? JR hypes Monday Night Raw for tomorrow night. He ends with Shamrock versus Severn 3. And Shane says, oh yeah, it's knuckle up time as we fade to black. But I thought I heard him say, it's knuckle puck time. And I was like, whoa, Junior Goodwill James, excuse me, Junior Goodwill Games star Russ Tyler? Is that you? Are you going to unleash the knuckle puck onto the world? But like I said, we fade to black and that's the end of the show. So, I'm sorry, not much of a strong finish here at the end. I feel totally bad that I I didn't really set us up for a quick finish, but that's what we got. Overall, this was a real fun, easy, short watch. I mean, really, it was a cakewalk. Uh, Considering sometimes it'll take me days to get through an episode of Sunday Night Heat. Not because it's bad, just because I have to take a lot of notes. But this one flew by. And we all know why. The conspiracy. The conspiracy theory to keep Shane McMahon's friends from allowing to speak continues. No, in the end, it's just a conspiracy that centers around the insane clown posse and their music rights. But folks, I want to thank you for joining us here for this episode of Kingfish. And please, give a listen to anything that's out there on the Aqua Cave. And don't forget... When you listen to the Aqua Cave, you're telling all of your friends that a winner is you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>